0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, read with me again in Zechariah chapter 3, and now verses 6 and 7. The, and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts." And I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. Well, as we have uh, surveyed something of um, the history of the restoration, which God worked in the days of Zechariah, bringing the remnant of the faithful Judahites back into the promised land where they established the re, the rebuilding of the temple and began from there to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We saw that among one of the leaders of that old covenant church, that of Joshua the high priest, that he was racked with guilt, a sense of his own foulness and pollution, such that he surely would have been useless in the calling and mission that he had, except that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared unto him and revealed his astonishing forgiveness and mercy, removing the foulness of his tattered garments and placing upon him the rich robes and the the clean attire of a true servant of the Lord. This vision was used in order to communicate unto him that he was restored. And various have speculated as to what was the sin that drove him to this despair. And some have speculated that it was precisely the sin that is recorded later on in the book of Ezra. How it was that the leaders and even the priests of the land gave their sons and daughters to intermarry with the peoples of the land, the idolaters and heathen nations. And even more spectacularly in, in its terrible departure from the word of God, even the priests themselves took some of these ungodly women to be their wives. And if you would read there in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, particularly chapter 10, you see that Joshua himself was numbered among those who had so sinned against the Lord. We read from both Old Testament and New Testament, we understand, don't we, that separation of the people of God, particularly in their marriage covenants, ensuring that we are not unequally yoked to unbelievers and those who do not name the name of Christ is an abiding principle. And however, it may be different if you compare the book of Ezra and how he deals with that situation, or you compare it to the Apostle Paul as he spells that out in 1 Corinthians. You understand, don't you, that separation is important, that godliness, particularly in our romantic relationships, is non-negotiable. But where it is that there is departure from the will of God in our own lives or in that of our families it does not mean that we have committed the unpardonable sin it doesn't mean that does not mean that the lord is done with us we see that do we not here in this passage where this man Joshua was restored unto usefulness and was greatly used of god But the counsel unto Joshua, upon this revelation of the pardoning mercy of God unto his soul, it did not come with a message that you may go now and sin, that grace may abound. No, God forbid. We see here that attached to this revelation was a solemn word. From the Lord Christ himself, wherein he said to Joshua that he was to go and sin no more. That is the sum and substance of what's contained in these verses, particularly verses 6 and 7. And I so think that this is a needful word for both ourselves individually and as a congregation. Let us attend to these two verses under the theme, the obedience of a cleansed sinner. The obedience of a cleansed sinner. I wish to look at this obedience in a number of uh, ways. First, we will see its foundation. Second, its character. And third, its reward. The obedience of a cleansed sinner, its foundation, its character, and its reward. Well, you see how this portion of Zechariah's prophecy begins in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua. This is a word from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the true angel and messenger of the Lord, as we considered this morning, this very one who had rebuked the devil This very one who commanded him to be clothed with the clean apparel of his righteousness and salvation. He also speaks unto this sinner who has been cleansed from his filth and his guilt. And the particular word that's translated protested perhaps deserves a word of Um, of consideration. Protest is not often something that we ascribe to God, and yet that Hebrew word is translated by the King James in some places in that way. For example, Jeremiah 11, verse 7, there the Lord says, for I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. And so a protest surely is something that is said in response to something that is wrong. So it is if people are protesting the government for trampling our lawful liberties, they are objecting to something that is wrong. Or Martin Luther protested against the abominations of the Roman Catholic Church. He says, "This will not stand and we must return to the true gospel, the true law, the true word of God. So something of that is captured uh, in the meaning of this Hebrew word. Elsewhere, it has more of the sense of testify, Testify. That's how the King James sometimes translated. For example, Deuteronomy 32, Verse 46, And he said unto them, Set your hearts upon all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. All the words which I testify among you this day. It seems as though where the Lord sometimes addresses his people with this word, the idea is that he's laying up within their conscience a reservoir of truth, a stockpile of light concerning what is righteous, what is good, what is pleasing unto him, so that as they go about their lives... Wherever they would depart from the ways of God, their own souls would testify against them with the words that they have heard. It is a sweet and a pleasing thing that the Lord Jesus Christ would so deal with his people this way. He says unto you, his precious people, I protest against your departing from my commandments. I would have your very souls and minds testify against you wherever you leave the way that is good and right. Obedience, you see, is to characterize the Christian, not lawlessness, not self-will, not self-pleasing, but no, the one who is redeemed by Jesus Christ, they have the word of Christ stored up in their hearts such that they do not want to sin against him. And however imperfect the obedience of the people of God is in this life where they are indwelled by the spirit of Christ, there will be that principle of obedience which will surely manifest itself. Not... Automatically, however, not without your own subjection unto the revealed will of Christ. So it is that we don't just close our Bibles and say, oh, sanctify me, Lord. No, if we would truly be a holy people, then it's attending to the words of Christ that this will happen. Obedience, you see, is sometimes pitted against true grace. Even in the Christian church, they oppose the two and say, if a preacher or a teacher is speaking much of law and much of obedience, much of holiness, well, where is the grace? Where is the message of the gospel? in that surely these two things are opposed. And yet, we look at the Lord's dealings in his gracious covenant and always, always obedience was at the center of him. We think of that amazing display of the Lord's grace where he liberated the people of God out of Egypt with his mighty hand. With that demonstration that he was a God unto them, he would make them his people. And he says in Exodus chapter 19 and verse four, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you upon eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me. Above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Words repeated by the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle Peter, in the second chapter of his first epistle. A wonderful title given unto the Lord's people, a kingdom. A people set apart unto the subjection of their blessed God and Savior. But a kingdom of priests. Dedicated unto worship. Dedicated unto service. Dedicated unto communion with their God. Where there is grace, there will be obedience. We are saved unto obedience. We are saved unto Godliness, and can anyone imagine that there would be any other way that God would so deal with us? Can the one who is holiness himself cause his name to be so blasphemed as to leave his people in the abominations of this world? No, surely he will save his people from their sins. And where? You have the church as a kingdom of priests under the old covenant that was especially exemplified, typified, and set forth as a living example among their priest class. Out of the tribe of Levi, it was the priests who were to be as a sort of microcosm of the entire church. As they were, in relation to the other nations, a kingdom of priests, so the Jews set apart one tribe to be the priests of the priests, to give a picture of what it was to truly be wholly set apart unto the Lord. And this is surely what's lying behind this special exhortation given to the high priest Joshua. He says, And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Words that echo, really, the institution of that priest class from the tribe of Levi in Numbers chapter 3, verse 5. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him, and they shall keep his charge, and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation, to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. So it was that they were dedicated unto the special worship of God among that mobile um, temple, which was the great tent of the tabernacle, that mobile temple. And so it carries forward as the actual temple is built under Solomon and the worship of God is centered there. The priests are to be a holy people. And it was their departure from the plan and purpose of God that was one of the reasons the people were driven into captivity. And now, as Joshua contemplates this in his own compromise concerning his own romantic life and taking an ungodly woman and seeking to repent of that, there is held forth here the wonderful revelation of Christ's will for him that he would truly walk as a true priest, a true priest. The foundation of it is grace, you see. We saw that this morning. He didn't just walk up to Joshua and say, you have failed, try and do better. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not pull yourself by your bootstraps, but through the revelation of what Christ has done in cleansing you from your sins. Therefore, now walk according to true gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Notice how these words are followed by so much attention unto the revelation of the salvation to be found in Christ Jesus himself. He's addressed there in verse 8 about the coming of the branch. Behold, I'll bring forth my servant, the branch, a title of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which sets him forth in his humanity as a true man, as a suffering servant. It sets him forth as the one who had come from the line of David, a shoot of the stump of Jesse, as one who would fulfill the promises given unto the Davidic line, as the one who would be king over the nations and God's chosen savior of the world. Notice how it says in verse 9, For behold the stone I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall shall be seven eyes. So the one is called the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also called the stone. He is the great foundation stone of the church, the one who holds up the great weight of the entire people of God by his righteousness, strength, holiness, and grace. Notice how it says, seven eyes will be upon him. The idea there is one of completeness. Seven is the number of completeness. And all eyes, the complete number of eyes, are all upon this stone. There is the eye of the Father. His eye is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here is the eye of the Holy Spirit. His eye is upon the Lord Jesus Christ, anointing him with the oil of gladness, even the power and grace in order to save his people. There are the eyes of the weary and the anxious sinners looking to him for their salvation and refuge from the wrath to come. There are the eyes of the people in church of God seeking their daily nourishment, strength and help from this, their great refuge. And will there not be a day where every eye will behold him? They will see him as he is, great in his majesty and in his glory, with millions of angels in his train. And all nations will mourn, and the ungodly and the perverse and the wicked will be cast into everlasting fire. And they will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them to escape from the sight of the Lamb. All eyes upon him, the stone. And Do you not see that he is the foundation of all obedience? Notice how it continues there. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day all the iniquity will be removed for all of the transgressions of the Lord's people were laid upon him by whose stripes we are healed. And all the names engraven upon him, all the names of the Lord's elect ones, they shall be found in him both in time and in eternity and no condemnation shall befall them. Here is the grace that is the foundation of your obedience, Christian. Look and see the logic, see the wisdom, see the harmony. You have been saved unto godliness and unto obedience. Now, we observe the foundation, but now we should attend to the character. The character of this. And we ought to be careful and to observe there are things peculiar unto that Old Testament priesthood, which do not follow uh, today. And yet, as I think we will see, there are things that are universal, that apply unto all Christians in one way, in particular, Christians in another. And so we attend unto the obedience and the character of it under our second consideration. Notice how it's put in verse 6. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways. If thou wilt walk in my ways. Here is the character of true obedience. It is intentional. It is intentional. And you imagine if you met someone walking uh, down a beaten path and you'd ask them, Where are you going? If they were to say, I have no clue whatsoever. I don't know where I come from. I don't know where I'm going. Well, I think you would say that that is someone who is in trouble. Maybe they are sleepwalking, maybe they are lost, but it ought not to be so with the people of God. For when it comes to the decisions that you make in the life that you live, those things that are revealed unto you for your good and for your godliness are very clear and apparent. You are to walk, as this text says, in my ways. In the ways of the Lord. What are the ways of the Lord? Well, surely they involve a sense of his presence in your life. This is what was said unto our father Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 1. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Walk before me. Intentionally live as one who is in the presence of God attendant with that is the careful attention to all that the Lord speaks, all that the pleasing that is pleasing unto the Lord, Micah chapter six and verse eight, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. How is it? That you are to treat others in your relationships? How is it that you are to think about your work? How is it that you are to think about the place that you give unto prayer and devotions? How is it that you are to spend your money? How is it that you are to govern your thoughts? Well, is it not all comprehended in this? The revealed will of your God. God's revealed will and his law, it covers everything. All of your affections and emotions and thoughts, all of your actions, all of your words, they are to be directed unto this one great goal, and that is the glory of God. You walk before God. You walk according to the ways of God. Why? Because he is God. He is Your creator, he is worthy of it, but also this. He has saved you in his everlasting love. He has rescued you as a brand from the fire. He has restored you unto a right fellowship with him. And so you, O Christian, are to walk with him, intentionally going against the flow of society, intentionally separating yourself from the pollutions and defilements of this wicked culture. Walking that straight and narrow way wherein is your life, wherein is your salvation, wherein is the glory of your master. And you know that where you depart from to the left or to the right, therein lies misery, therein lies sorrow, therein lies the defaming of the character of your God. So you would mourn and you would cry out unto the Lord every day for your great sins and you would seek his grace in order to walk according to his will. And how much more with those who are called to special responsibilities. Really, if you think of the first principle here, that is intentional obedience here is really the accompanying responsibility that goes with it for Here you have particular uh, uh, callings that are laid up here. For the priest of God, if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts. Listen to what Dr. John Gill says about this, explaining how this relates particularly to the role of the priest. He says this, The command is to preside in the temple, be governor in it, and to have the care of all the courts belonging to the people and the priests, and the advantages arising from thence. The meaning is that whereas the office of the priesthood was in disuse through the captivity, that is the captivity in Babylon, and was become contemptible through the sins of the priests, it should now be restored to its former honor and glory to have a place in the house of God. The church is a great honor and still more to be governor and ruler in it. So there's a particular uh, role here for the priest as one with special responsibility within the church. Special responsibility. We understand, of course, that the office of priest has expired with the coming of Christ. In its place comes the priesthood of all believers. All believers are priests through the anointing of Christ Jesus by faith. And yet in the room, as it were, of the priests comes the rulers of the church. Those who are called to be servants under Christ, the one Lord and head of the church, Governing those things according to his will. And we have but to consider what befell the old covenant church and the great calamities that resulted from the failure of a responsibility of the leaders to see what can happen also in our own day. You remember, of course, how it was with that temple of God, which the priests had been entrusted to uh, steward, been entrusted to govern according to the laws of God. And then the Lord Jesus arrives, and we read in Matthew 21, verse 12, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them, that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Ye have made it a den of thieves. So it was that the ordinances and worship of God were being profaned by those who were seeking to enrich themselves. And so there was a terrible departure from the worship of God in the days of Christ. And the judgment for that fell upon the leaders of the church. So it is that our Belgic Confession, in Article 29, it specifies that the Uh, The marks of the church include church discipline, church discipline. Listen to what we read in Belgic Confession, Article 29, quote, The marks by which the true church is known are these, if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein. If she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. So so it is, if you would decide what is the true church which you are to join yourself to under uh, your conscience before the Lord, it is not only the doctrine that is preached, it is not only the sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper and how they are administered that you are to consider, but this as well is their church discipline. For if there is lacking this principle that sin's are dealt with according to the law of Christ, then there is no true church. And indeed, the responsibility for this primarily falls in the leadership, but also upon all members of the church. For does not the Lord Jesus himself give all the members of the church a role in the proper discipline of his body? Matthew 18, verse 15 Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church." But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. It is the will of Christ that those who obstinately and persistently remain in unrepentant sin are not to be dealt with as brothers and sisters in the Lord. But upon the procedure outlined here, there is to be a point at which, in order for their restoration and salvation, they are dealt with as unbelievers, as heathens. So it is that this is entrusted unto the leaders of the church. Matthew 16 and verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom and whosoever thou shalt bind in on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So it is that Christ Jesus prescribes this. Not only unto the priests of the old covenant, but also to the elders of the new, that church discipline, that the governance of his church should be directed unto this, which is the purity of true godliness. There are not to be scandalous sins within the church that Christ be blasphemed. But no, the character of the people of God is to show forth that which is pleasing unto the Lord, else it is no true church. I was reading John Owen upon this fact in his great treatise, The True Nature of a Gospel Church, much that's very helpful in that, going through the different roles of the members and the roles of the officers and the role of church discipline and so forth. And sometimes he will answer these objections that come forth. For example, one the objections that is raised is this in his book the true nature of a gospel church first he says it is inquired whether excommunication justly deserved may and ought to be omitted in case of trouble or danger that may ensue unto the church thereon and he lists different examples for how the church itself may be endangered if they actually excommunicate one who is persistent in their sin. And he gives different examples, such as um, attacks from the civil government or or other kind of things that may follow. But then he he adds this uh, consideration. Suppose, he says, the church itself may be divided on these considerations so that lasting differences may be occasioned among them which the omission of the sentence might prevent. So the idea is we can keep the unity of the church if we simply do not practice church discipline, for it would be too difficult. It would lead to lasting differences if someone persistent in their sin were to be excommunicated in the the division that would follow. So he considers this, and what does he say in response to this? Well, he says a number of things. First, he says we ought to get some ground rules. First, we assume that the case of excommunication be clear and evident. In other words, it is a true sin, one that is displeasing unto the Lord. Second, we assume that sufficient time and space for repentance has been given. It's not been rushed. And third, that the church doth really suffer in honor and reputation by tolerating such a scandalous offender among them. So assume all that is true. There is a true offense unto Christ, and there is indeed time for repentance, and there is indeed uh, damage done to the honor of the church. And this is what he says. I answer on these suppositions. I see no just reason to countenance the omission of the execution of this sentence, or to acquit the church for the guilt of sin in so doing. He says, not only is it impermissible to not excommunicate such a person, but indeed it would be a sin not to. And how does he justify that? Well, he does it in three ways. First, he says this, the Lord Jesus Christ commendeth or reproveth his churches, according, as they were strict in the observation of this duty or negligence of it, notwithstanding the fear of persecution thereon. And he outlines a number of cases in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Christ reproves churches for failing to excommunicate known sinners. Two, he will take that care of his church. That is, Christ will take that care of his church in all their obedience unto him, as shall turn all the consequences thereof unto their advantage. Christ will care for you. Don't imagine that he will forsake you when you do what he requires. And third, as unto the danger of difference in the church, there is nothing to be said but that if rule, order, love, and duty will not prevent such differences, there is no way appointed of Christ for that end. And if they are sufficient for it, as they are abundantly, they must bear their own blame who occasion such differences. So it is that the differences that ensue from the right observance of church discipline, if rightly followed, they... Do not fall upon the one who administers it. I put to you, this is something we need to hear in our own day. I remember listening to the discussion at Synod about our sister churches there in Holland. How it is that there are churches within the Free Reform Church of Holland who are ordaining women. And for years they have been denounced by Synod as those who are breaking the ordinance of Christ. And yet they remain flagrantly disobeying the Lord, or you see other cases, even we fear in our own denomination where there are members who are promoting the watering down of our doctrine on homosexuality, or you look at any number of other cases in which things that are displeasing to Christ are allowed to predominate. We ought not to think that we are immune from such things. We ought to see that where Christ has clearly prescribed in his word what he expects from his people, what he expects from his officers, what it is that is the pure um, way of the word, we are in no way allowed to depart from it. Let us lay these things to our own heart, and let us be much in prayer that we would be faithful in all things, in all of our callings, unto the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we've seen here that there is, in Zechariah's words that he's recording, there's the principle uh, or the foundation of this obedience and the character of it. Let's consider in the third place briefly its reward, its reward. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. What does that last phrase mean, do you suppose? I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. He speaks to those who have walked with him in the world, who have walked with him in the ways of the Lord. And now he says, I will give you, he says, uh, places to walk among these that stand by. Who are the ones that stand by? Well, you look again and again, and it is a reference unto the angels of heaven, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 2, where the great uh, revelation that Isaiah received of the heavenly host Begins in this way. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Stood the seraphims. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We look in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1 and verse 19. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. So it is that these angels who, as we saw this morning, are clearly in the background of this vision. They are the ones who are disrobing and uh, clothing the poor Joshua with the raiment of his glorious apparel. And so it is that these heavenly messengers who serve the Lord night and day from heavenly glory, they are named here. And they are those whom the saints of God will join in heavenly glory. Matthew 22, verse 30, the Lord Jesus himself said, For in the resurrection they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. What is held forth here? Well, it is that these who walk according to the ways of God, who take on their responsibilities and pursue purity according to the path of true obedience, they are the ones who are promised heavenly delights in the presence of God where righteousness dwells. We look ahead not unto any merely earthly delight, but into the world to come where perfect presence and communion with God is to be enjoyed by the saints of light. And we ought not to be surprised that obedience is joined to this great blessing and reward. It even says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Not indeed that our obedience ever merits or earns us heavenly glory, but indeed this way of gratitude, this way of obedience, is the way appointed for those who are forgiven, for those who are justified, and for those who will receive that final glorification They are indelibly linked and none can separate what God has put together here. And so, Christian, as you set out for this week, as you seek to pick yourself up, to pick yourself up and to seek to honor your God, to walk in the paths that he has laid before you. You may be weary, you may be downcast, you may be discouraged, but remember this, there is a heaven to be enjoyed. There are heavenly delights laid in store for you who walk according to the paths of true righteousness. Do not imagine that any affliction or sorrow or temptation is able to separate you from the love of Christ. Listen to what Samuel Rutherford, the great Presbyterian, said. We fools, speaking of himself and others, we fools would have a cross of our own choosing and would have our gall and wormwood sugared, our fire cold, and our death and grave warmed with the heat of life. But he who hath brought many children to glory and lost none is our best tutor. Whatever affliction the Lord Jesus has appointed for you, dear one, is not for your destruction. It is for your good. It is for your refining. It is for the sure delights of the world to come. Hear these things. Consider what love the Lord Jesus has bestowed upon us, that we should walk as the true children.